Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Warm greetings from Northwest Germany. My name is Dong Wang, and I'm the host for today's interview with Dr. Terry Louds about his new book, Americans in China, Encounters with the People's Republic, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Terry, we first met at Wellesley University nearly 20 years ago while you were working at the Luce Foundation in NYC, and I was working at Golden College on the North Shore of Boston. But for our audience, I wonder if you'd say a few words about yourself. Well, thank you so much, Dong, and thank you for this opportunity to talk about my new book, Americans in China, Encounters with the PRC. And first of all, let me say how much I admire the work that you have done on different aspects of U.S.-China history and the history of the role of Christianity in China and many other topics. Your work has been very important in bringing a Chinese perspective based on Chinese language sources to the larger question of U.S.-China relations. So in, in terms of my background, I was born in the United States, in Illinois, and it's actually interesting. I was born in a, a little town called Pekin, P-E-K-I-N. And the story is that this town was named when it was founded back in the 19th century, because if presumably if you dug a hole you know, through the center of the earth, you would end up in Peking. And I don't know if that's you know, altogether true, but I've read that. In any case, maybe I was destined to study China. But more seriously, I had the opportunity to live in Taiwan when I was a teenager. And of course, at that time, Americans were unable to travel to mainland China. We could only go to Hong Kong and look over the border. But because of my two years in Taiwan at Taipei American School, I became very interested in Chinese history. And that was my major when I went to college. I went to Harvard. And at that time, this is the late 1960s, a long time ago, there were very, very few opportunities for China jobs. And so even my mother said, well, Terry, it's very interesting that you would study China, but what are you going to do with it? And it was a very serious question because there just were not that many opportunities outside of a small number of positions in academia. But really what got me even more serious about the study of China and Asia more generally was my experience serving with the U.S. Army in the Medical Service Corps in Vietnam. And the experience in Vietnam made me realize that American leaders and the American public 
knew very little about the role of nationalism in particular and, and the history of the wars that had been fought with the French, the Japanese, and the Chinese by the Vietnamese. So this is what led me to graduate school at Stanford University. And I was very fortunate to have some excellent teachers and excellent colleagues Many of us were actively involved in our opposition to the Vietnam War, but we were also very, very interested in China because China was obviously the major reason why the United States was fighting the war in Vietnam in the first place, you know, was to prevent the spread of communism as part of this ideology, policy of isolating and containing uh, China. Uh, so that's a little bit on my background. I've been really very, very fortunate to find jobs doing uh, public education and educational exchange, first with the Asia Society, then with the Yale China Association, and then for a number of years with the Luce Foundation doing philanthropy grants, making grants to encourage exchange and language training, library development, and other forms of interaction with China and other parts of Northeast and Southeast Asia. Thank you so much, Terry. I'm truly honored by your generous words. And it's so great to be able to interview you for your new book, I have read your well-researched book from cover to cover and really appreciate the opportunity to discuss it with you today. So first of all, what mean messages do you intend to convey to readers, Terry? Thank you, Dong. I hope that the book will provide a broader historical perspective on China and U.S.-China relations. I hope it will help us to realize that many of the issues that we are contending with today didn't start just a few years ago with, you know, with, with Xi Jinping, that these differences in terms of values, in terms of how our governments view each other, have deep and lasting roots and we have a history, as you well know, of swinging between very negative and very positive views of China. And so I hope that this book will give us some understanding of how and why these issues evolved over time and why they remain unresolved. These would include you know, questions ranging from human rights to freedom of the press, freedom of speech, academic freedom, transfer of intellectual property, and of course the issue of Taiwan. And I think the second thing about the book that I hope to convey is the importance of human relations. They exist within a framework of state-to-state -state relations, but so often when we Americans, Westerners, write about China, we write about the critical policy issues in a, in a more abstract way, you know, South China Sea or Taiwan and so forth. And that's essential. But it's really the individual people behind these issues that shape the issues, that move these issues along in one way or another. 
you know, that debate and discuss these issues. There's a lot of works that have been done on the top leaders, you know, on Richard Nixon or Deng Xiaoping or Xi Jinping now or others. David Shambaugh has just written an excellent book on the past five Chinese leaders. But I was interested in getting at some of the people whose names are not that well known, some of the people who played critical roles, and asking how did they interact with China and what was their ability to influence the direction of change. Thank you, Terry. Indeed, in your new book, you reviewed quite a rich, intimate, and multi-layered world of certain individual experiences in and ways the PRC, the People's Republic of China. I found such a group biographical approach absorbing, lucid, and powerful. I learned a great deal from you. Could you tell us a bit more about this genre of writing you adopted? Uh, yes, I should explain that I was inspired by a book that Jonathan Spence, a professor of Chinese history at Yale University for many years, originally from England, but he wrote early on in his career a book called Western Advisors to China, and the subtitle was To Change China. And it was a series of biographical profiles, starting with Matei, the famous uh, Jesuit missionary to China, who introduced things like astronomy, Western-style astronomy. I should say the Chinese were already doing astronomy. To American General Stilwell and Chenault during World War II. And I was always quite taken with this book. And when I retired from the Luce Foundation, I finally had the time to think about doing an update of and using Spence's approach of these individual stories. And the accepted wisdom of Spence's book was that Westerners failed to change China. And, and in fact, it was foolish to even try. But I think if you read the book more closely, you'll find that uh, many of his characters had a significant impact on the relationship. And I think as in my book, not all the characters you know, tried to change China overtly, but just the interaction with China, the fact that they, you know, some of them were born and raised in China, this certainly did influence the direction of change, especially when Chinese people and Chinese government were actively looking for change. And so those are some of the issues that I wanted to get into. And I thought the biographical approach would make it interesting and appealing to students as well as broader audiences. Thank you, Terry. You've done a great deal of archival, oral interview, and secondary sources research. I really admire your effort, great actually success, 
I wonder if you can explain to readers and listeners further how you've made a sustained conscious effort to collect such a rich and wide range of material for your book. In your stories of certain individuals, you invoked the whole gamut of U.S. involvement in Asia, as well as human emotions. How did you choose to portray the varied American encounters with the PRC by putting a human face to the geopolitical, economic, military, social, cultural, and people-to-people dimensions of the state-to-state relationship from the 1920s to the present? Well, the book is more or less chronological. It starts with the Cold War era when American interaction was very limited. But even so, there were Americans living and working in China, sometimes in very unexpected ways. One of the chapters talks about two Americans who were held as prisoners of war in Korea, and one of the two is African-American. And they, along with 19 other American soldiers who were held prisoner in Korea, decided to voluntarily go to the People's Republic, what was called Red China. And it was hard for American public and the American government to understand this and to accept this. And so I talk in this chapter about how and why they made this radical decision. But they ended up being able to get university educations. They both married Chinese women, had children, and then decided to return to the United States in the mid-1960s at the outset of the Cultural Revolution. And I also write about two young Americans who went to Yan'an, you know, the headquarters of the communist movement in the late 1940s, through the 1940s actually, and they stayed on and became devoted Maoists. Uh, and, and they were not ideological to start off with, but they were so captivated, they were so moved by the idealism of the communists at that time that they remained dedicated to Maoism for the rest of their lives. So again, I try to explain how on earth they would make this unusual decision. So then I wanted to tell stories that you know, reflected these different approaches that had some personal and human drama to them. I also wanted to write about a range of topics and themes, and that's really the major focus of the second part of the book where I get into journalists. I wrote about a human rights advocate, John Cam, and so I also was determined in Jonathan Spence's book, I think for understandable historical reasons, uh, he wrote only about white uh, Western men. And so I was determined to include at least some Chinese Americans and some women. And, you know, because their, their stories have been, I think, largely overlooked. And I thought it was very important to include them as well. So the metaphor I use is uh, Indian fable of the blind man and the elephant. The blind man is touching different parts of, of the elephant and coming up with different conclusions about what this beast actually is, what it actually looks like. And I think that's true of, of China as well. 
Thank you so much, Terry, for for working on putting the China puzzle together for us in your new brilliant work.、Uh, speaking of the Cold War, on page seventeen, you wrote and quoted Walter Jard, a former medical missionary in China whose second profession became politics. I quote you here and quote him to here. Quote. Jad was best known for his unyielding hostility to communism, which he called "quote a disease of human behavior." End quote. In politics, as in medicine, his approach was quote to find out the things that are not basically sound and work to cure or remove them. End quote. As the United States continues to search for most effective ways to deal with the PRC, how useful or unuseful is Jia's approach and face in the democratic nature of the Chinese people then and now, Terry?、Mm, well, that's a wonderful question. And when I started writing about Walter Judd, who was a congressman from Minnesota for about twenty years, my understanding was that he had just been one of the leaders of the anti-China or anti-PRC movement. That he had been very successful as a member of the so-called China Lobby in isolating China and preventing diplomatic relations, keeping the PRC out of the United Nations. But I came to realize that Judd was doing all of this not because he was a political opportunist. He was a Republican, but he was a moderate Republican. He was actually very progressive on a number of other issues, including immigration. He supported John F. Kennedy's Peace Corps, and was in favor of U.S. foreign aid. And so I came to realize that Judd really was motivated more by his own idealism, and this is idealism that he developed as, as you mentioned, as a medical missionary to China. He served in both North China and South China for a total of ten years, and he actually encountered Chinese communists. Mainly in the south, in Fujian province, and he admired the communists because they were disciplined. Unlike a lot of the bandit groups at that time, they were well organized, well behaved. But he became very suspicious about them, and he believed they were, as he put it, devoid of morality because they rejected any religion at all. And he concluded they didn't believe that there was any such thing as right or wrong, and so this I think explains in part why he was so opposed to communism. He, as many others during the Cold War, linked Chinese communism with the Soviet Union, and there was growing awareness, of course, of what had happened under Stalin during the purges in the 19 late 20s and 30s. And so there was, I think, good reason to be suspicious of communism. But Judd believed wholeheartedly that if given the opportunity to choose whatever political system they wanted, that the Chinese people would opt for democracy. He believed they were democratic at heart, based on his own experiences with the Chinese people. 
And so that also, I think, helps to explain part of his motivation. But to answer the other part of your question, I think it also speaks to the question of why his views are worth considering and worth remembering uh, even today. Because here again, much of our uh, political rhetoric, and I think even in terms of popular opinion, Americans persist in thinking, believing, and hoping that China should and will perhaps become democratic, right? And that the approach of the CCP is an approach for China. So it's this question that President Biden and, and others have raised about a contest between authoritarianism and democracy. You know, more, more can be said about that. Yeah, following up on your excellent elaboration on Walter Judd, I would like to ask, as you pointed out in the book, most American POWs during the Korean War and Chinese Americans, such as Yu Yingshi, he was a Princeton University's most influential sinologist and historian, consciously chose the United States rather than the PRC for professional and personal reasons. Independence and faith in democracy often trumps ethnicity. Would you like to address the issue of representation of these groups of people in terms of social identity for academic writings? Well, it's a very big question, as you know, Dong. There were many Chinese who had come from what was then nationalist China under the control of the Kuomintang. But because of the turmoil during the Civil War and then the uncertainty at the time of the Chinese Revolution and the communist takeover in 1949, many of these Chinese decided to stay in the United States. And this would include, I think, people like Yu Yingshi. I, I don't write about him specifically, but also Yang Chunning, Xian Yang, uh, who was a, a theoretical physicist. Uh, who studied at University of Chicago and went on to the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies. He, uh, along with Tsung Da Lee, uh, won a Nobel Prize jointly uh, in physics in 1957. So some of these people, as you say, consciously chose the United States, but then when it became possible to go back to China, mainly after 1971, after Kissinger went to China and just before Nixon's trip, when the United States dropped the restrictions on travel to China, many of these China Americans, including Xian uh, Yang, really wanted to go back for a variety of reasons. They wanted to see their families. Yang, of course, had been able to see his parents in Hong Kong and also in Geneva, Switzerland, which was very unusual. I think this was because he had so much prestige as a Nobel Prize winner. And in Yang's case in particular, they wanted to see if there were ways in which they could help China to become part of the world, to overcome the humiliation of the past, to restore China's greatness. And so it was fascinating to me to learn that 
that Young actually became very, very active politically in advocating for the establishment of full diplomatic relations between the United States and China. After he went to China in the early 1970s, he met on his first trip with Zhou Enlai, and his second trip, he was invited to meet Mao Zedong, and he came back from China thinking that, and he could see some evidence of this, he was not aware of the problems of the Cultural Revolution, but he could see with his own eyes that the huge obstacles, the huge problems of famine and basic education, women's rights, organization of the society was so much better than it had been during World War II, the war against Japan, and during the Civil War. And so he became a real advocate for this new China. But he and others had to face the fact that the Chinese-American community in the United States was divided between those who had fled from the communists in the late 1940s or early 1950s and were loyal to Taiwan. Some of them went to Taiwan initially and those who were more sympathetic to the communists. And Yang's argument was the PRC is a reality and it won't hurt Taiwan if the United States establishes relations. We should accept the fact that communist China exists. I think the, the reason for this had more to do with his deep sense of being Chinese, his Chinese-ness, if you will, this cultural identity as a Chinese. It wasn't so much a question of nationalism as it was a question of patriotism. And so he was very, very prominent as a leader of the Chinese-American community to argue for better relations. So these Chinese-Americans like Yang and many others became important intermediaries between the two cultures, the two societies. But they kept a low profile because they were well aware of the history of racism in the United States, anti-Chinese racism, which again, we, we see so much of today. And, you know, Chinese in America, going back to, you know, their immigration as railway workers and laborers in the West had learned to keep a low profile. They, they learned that it was not safe to stick your head up. And it was, it was better just to work hard and keep your head down and make progress. The message generally was don't get involved with politics. Now, of course, this has changed with a younger generation of Chinese and even earlier with organizations like the Committee of 100, which I write about in another chapter. Yeah, thank you, Terry. In the 13 individuals' respective professional fields, has any shift of perceptions of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, the reforms, the self-identity, American continued hopes for a democratic mainland China taken place in the past six decades? Elizabeth Perry, who is a prominent China scholar at Harvard, was in college during the 1960s at the height of the anti-Vietnam War protests. And she was really, as others of that generation, she was very much uh, taken with the, the philosophy, the idealism of, of Mao, Mao Zedong. 
and she read the little red book, uh, the quotations from Chairman Mao. She even had some red suitcases and a little automobile. She told me she had an automobile that she called Mao. She had a very interesting background as well because her parents had been educational missionaries at St. John's University in Shanghai, where she was born. But she grew up mainly in Japan and Oregon. And uh, so growing up, she listened to her parents talking about the Chinese Revolution. She was fascinated by political protests in Japan. She went on and did her PhD at University of Michigan. But it was not until she went to China and she was among the first group of American students who was allowed to go and study and do research on a longer term basis. She was there for almost a year at Nanjing University. And this was an eye-opening experience for her because she came to realize that the idealism of the Chinese Revolution had not been that there was a huge gap, let's put it this way, between the aspirations of the communist movement and the reality of it. As she began to learn about some of the, the tragedies of the communist policies during the Cultural Revolution or the Great Leap Forward, the Great Famine, and so forth. And so she was disillusioned by this. And when she returned to the United States, she had to rewrite all of her courses. Everything that she had thought before turned out not to be the case. And this was true of other Americans as well. There was a sense of, of disillusionment, but rather than walking away from the field, she decided to dig deeper and to say, well, how do we explain the origins of the Chinese Revolution? And you know what, what were the historical precedents? So for example, Marxist historians argued that the revolution was the direct and inevitable result of earlier history. And so she actually went back to a late 19th century rebellion in Anhui province in north central China to ask what was it that inspired this rebellion. And instead of any, she found no evidence of ideology or a belief system, religion. Instead, the root cause in this area of China was competition for resources among bandit groups uh, because of a severe famine. And uh, there were, of course, as you well know, other movements like the Taiping Rebellion, mid-19th century, as well as the Boxer Uprising of 1900. Uh, where there was some religious inspiration, to be sure. But Perry found no single cause for rebellion. It was, so what she was saying was uh, history is more complicated, and there was no, no such thing as historical inevitability. And she went on to write about the labor movement in Shanghai. And so I, I think her work was especially significant because instead of trying to impose a Western uh, social science model or theory from the outside. She decided to look at it and to look to Chinese history, even though she's a political scientist. Uh, she's really as much a historian as she is a, a political scientist. But to look to Chinese history and culture to explain the success of the Chinese Communist Party. 
and her, her scholarship has been very important in looking at China from the inside out and from the bottom up, unlike an earlier generation of China scholars in America, in the West, who simply could not go to China and so focused on leadership from the top down. You know, they studied ideology and authoritarianism and factionalism. Liz Perry represents this brand new generation of, of China scholars. And like you and others, I'm concerned that with restricted access to China, and limited, more limited access to archives in the PRC that uh, we now are in a position, and, and also with COVID on top of everything else, the pandemic, we are now in a position of having to study China from the outside. On the other hand, we have lots and lots of data. We have uh, access to the internet, which never existed, uh, you know, when, when I was a younger, a younger scholar. And I'm optimistic that eventually we, we will have better access and you know, things will get back to a, a more, let's call it more normal situation. Harry, on the origins of the Chinese Revolution, I wonder if we look at the history of China since about 1900, is there a betrayal of the original ideals for the 1911 revolution that toppled the Qing imperial dynasty from 1644 to 1912? Well, this is an enormous question and a very, very important one because not only the ideals of the 1911 revolution, ideals of Sun Yat-sen's Sanmin Jui, three people's principles, you know, which include democracy. Uh, and even the Communist Party uh, leaders have said, of course, you know, we, we want democracy. But I think scholars like Elizabeth Perry and many others would argue that the ideals of the revolution going back to 1911 have not been respected, have not been carried out. In fact, they've been betrayed. Liz Perry wrote a very interesting book on the Anyuan coal mines in the 1920s when the communists did a labor organization there. And at that time, they were very idealistic. Uh, they were dedicated to uh, making life better for the people, the common people. And they believed in this goal of an egalitarian society. But as they faced the resistance from the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek and then under the Japanese, and in order to gain power, they became more and more arbitrary in their rule. And I think they adopted a Leninist approach to organizing the Communist Party, which emphasized rigid discipline and lost sight of the goals of egalitarianism because of the need to establish power, and then I think the need to remain in power. Uh, so Perry laments the fact that the communists, uh, the CCP refuses to come to terms with extremely uh, significant events in its own history. They refuse to face up to the realities of 
the tragedies of the past, including Tiananmen, June 4th. These are things that a lot of Chinese students, when they come to universities in the United States and the West, uh, when they learn about these things for the first time, they're shocked. And the internet does provide you know, more information about, about these events. But I think Perry argues, just as I would argue and others would argue about uh, American history, that if we don't stand up and recognize the painful realities, issues like slavery in the United States, that we're not honest to ourselves as a society. We cannot realize our own ideals. We cannot be a truly democratic society. And so I think this is important lesson when we think about China as well, because it suggests that if the party state cannot face up to the reality of history, uh, if they persist in, in uh, practicing political and cultural amnesia about the past, that this will erode their legitimacy. That if they cannot be honest about their own history, honest with their own people, that over time, this this will not last. Thank you so much, Terry, for sharing your insights into this very important issue. Your concluding paragraph is well put. I wonder if you could share uh, the overall take of your living protagonists you explained a moment ago to change China for the better. Yes, well, I think Melinda Leo, who has played a very central role as a, an American journalist in China, and who's still living and writing from Beijing, would make the argument that the change is inevitable in China, that whether China would go in a democratic direction as we talk about democracy in the West remains to be seen. I, I'm not sure she would go that far. But I think uh, she would certainly share the hope that these original ideals that we've been talking about and that uh, Xi Jinping has been asking members of the CCP to study, they would be more than rhetoric, more than just you know set pieces, more than you know going back to recite some of the some of the, the words of Mao and and some of the the other leaders. But to me, the most, and I think Perry and Leo and others would, would certainly agree that the most obvious and important potential source of new agency and voice in bringing new ideas to China are the students, the Chinese who, who people like yourself, Dong, who have come to the West for education. Many, of course, have returned to China. But they now are leaders in many fields, many professions, including Chinese studies. And they've really transformed, and I should say you have transformed literally the face of the study of China, our understanding of China, as people who are completely bicultural and in some cases bi binational, bilingual certainly, who really have a deep understanding of both societies, both West and East. And so my, my hope is that over time, these voices will be heard, they will be prominent. If you look at Taiwan, I think at least one of the reasons for their democratization you know, starting in the late 1980s was the fact that so many of the 
their elite, is so many of the leaders had been educated in the West, and especially in the United States. And so I, I would not underestimate the future potential and influence. And I would also say this generation has already had very, very significant influence on how we think about China, how we approach U.S.-China relations. And they are not going to just go along with what the government tells them, either the U.S. government or the Chinese government. They're going to raise questions. They're going to think independently. So that gives me uh, a lot of hope for the future. Thank you, Terry. Yeah, I do think so too. The young generation holds the key to the future of um, the PRC, of course, uh, of our world as well. Now, <laughs> speaking of the younger generation, now the cover image of your book is striking. It looks as if the young Americans at the time in the 1950s were having a grand time with Zhou Enlai, Premier together. Could you tell us a bit more about this photo? Well, this is a remarkable story that I only learned about a few years ago. I had no idea that 41 young Americans who were attending a World Youth Fest in Moscow had been invited by the Chinese government to visit uh, the PRC in 1957. And remember, this is during the Cold War. Uh, it's about three years after the Korean War, and they are told by the U.S. State Department, by the U.S. Embassy, don't go to China. It's illegal. Your passports, your U.S. passports will be revoked. You may be subject to other punishments, other fines, uh, but 41 of them decided to go ahead. So the cover of the book is a photograph of some of these young Americans sitting with uh, Premier Zhou Enlai, and the uh, young Americans are seeing the African-American uh, spiritual, ain't gonna study war no more. And they spent six weeks in China, toured several different Chinese cities. They wrote newspaper reports, but the trip received some attention in the United States, but it did not open the door to better U.S.-China relations at the time. And so I juxtaposed this with ping-pong diplomacy in 1971, when indeed this kind of person-to-person uh, -person diplomacy did open the door. Uh, the time was right for that to happen. Thank you, Terry, for sharing this fascinating story. I hope maybe later some other colleagues could follow up <laughs> to write up a new book on some of the stories from the 1957s trip to the PRC. Terry, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much. One last question is, what are you working on now? Well, I'm thinking about a new project that would look at the experiences and the observations of Americans who were in China at the time of the Chinese Communist Revolution in 1949. You know, this is one of the turning points of 20th century history, and there was tremendous uncertainty about what would happen next. And so some of these observers were hopeful, they were optimistic that the communists would live up to their promises of um, equality and put an end to corruption and other ills. But others were very fearful of the future and very skeptical about the communists 
communists, and uh, they decided to leave. So I think looking at the different experiences, rural, urban, journalists, diplomats, military, business, and so forth, uh, might shed some light on some of the earlier questions that you were asking about the ideals and the, the direction, the trajectory of the revolution in China. So that's what I'm thinking about. Great. Thank you so much, Terry. Have a good day. I'm going to stop the recording now. Thank you.